some of you in about a month will attempt to do something. You'll attempt in about a month to deep fry a turkey. Now I heard Pastor Ben Stewart say that there are two ways to learn how to deep fry a turkey. One way to learn how to deep fry a turkey he calls the path of pain. The other way is the path of wisdom. You see, apparently there's all these uh, things you got to know to deep fry a turkey properly because if you put it in there incorrectly or you put it in frozen or you forget to prepare things properly, you can not only ruin your turkey and ruin Thanksgiving dinner, but you can burn your house down, right? So instead, what he says is, let somebody else pay the learning tax on that. Let somebody else make all those mistakes. And if you will just learn from their mistakes, then you don't have to learn by the path of pain. You can learn by the path of wisdom. And how do you get the path of wisdom? Well, Pastor Ben Stewart says what he does every year before he deep fries the turkey, he watches YouTube videos of deep fried turkey fails. He says, that right there is my path of wisdom. I watch that and I let them pay the learning tax. And by watching that, it is a warning that I need to be careful. Now, those fail videos can, of course, be very funny. Uh, They're especially funny when we know that no one was seriously hurt, injured. What's not funny is, of course, imagining watching something unfold where you do know people get hurt. Our text today is really watching somebody, spiritually speaking, burning their house down. Some of you know this is a difficult text. People do get hurt, uh, and it is a famous story. And some of you who've been with us in in 1 and 2 Samuel, you've been waiting for this. It It is probably as famous as David and Goliath is today's text in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, the famous story, the fall of David. It's David and Bathsheba. Yeah, I heard some of you say it. You know it. So turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. As I said, it's a difficult text, and I want you to know at the outset, my goal in this, we're going to you know, uh, see the, the, this guy just unravel and all this sin. My goal is not to shame anybody. Shame is not the goal. And if you'll stay with me, as painful as it is, we'll walk through this text, but we will get to grace. We will get there. If you'll stay with me, there's grace at the end. There's hope. And in fact, I want to move quickly. It's like a, a grace race to get there because we want to get to that grace at the end. And so far, let's set a little background for you before we look at verse one. So far, it has been a highlight reel of the faithfulness of David. It has been a highlight reel, right, of the goodness of God. God has been so good to David. And quite frankly, David has been so good. David, I mean, you... I wonder if maybe this is here in this particular moment in 2 Samuel because it's been just victory after victory and he always seems to make the right choice. He's got faith and takes down Goliath. He's got forgiveness in his heart. When Saul tried to kill him, he didn't try to kill Saul. Just one highlight reel after the next and you start to, I wonder if maybe you start to think maybe an earthly king could do the trick. Maybe what we do need is an earthly king. A human person could lead us to the righteousness of God. Maybe we don't need God as king after all. Maybe that's overkill. Maybe an earthly kingdom can start to work. All of that gets shattered, of course. 2 Samuel 11. Spiritual bankruptcy. Chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. Watch how many times the word sent is used. Over and over, they're sending in this passage. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, David would be about 50 years old at this point. He's fought plenty of battles, and now it's just sort of mop-up duty. The Ammonites aren't a real threat, but they've now pushed them back, and they're now walled up in their Ammonite city called Rabbah. And so now in the spring, Joab and the armies are, are doing what they call siege warfare. They're just going to kind of starve them out. They're waiting it out. If they come out and attack them, they'll take them down. Not a real threat. You know, commentators make a big deal about this. We're about to read about David's great fall, and a lot of commentators point out, you know, idleness. Right In the spring, it says, when kings go out to battle, this king did not go out to battle. And they make this point that he should have been on the battlefield. I don't know about that. I mean, he's fought enough battles. If he wants to send his capable general out, that's fine to do. Uh, but I think what we, what we can agree on is this. 
while it's not necessarily a sin for David not to go out to battle with his troops, it is often the case that a sense of ease and security is the prelude to moral failure and spiritual lapse. Isn't it? It's in those times when we've got it all together. When we start to take things for granted, maybe we just feel a little bit entitled. Here's David at the very zenith of his kingly rule. Again, it's not necessarily a sin, but, but 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, says, so whoever thinks he stands must be careful lest he fall. See, the Bible knows pride comes before a fall. When you think, if you're the person who thinks, I don't know why I'm listening to a sermon on David and Bathsheba, I would never be guilty of any kind of massive moral failing. Oh, let he who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. So whatever the cause, good or bad, that kept David in Jerusalem, I think we can agree. Idle hand, have you ever heard idle hands of the devil's workshop? Did you ever have a grandma that told you that? Idle hands of the devil's workshop. I thought about, this, I read this great, great quote from Samuel Johnson. I thought it was so good I put it up here. He's saying, if you're bored, make sure you're not alone. And if you're alone, make sure you're not bored. Make sure you're doing something productive. Here's how he worded it. If you are idle, be not solitary. If you're solitary, be not idle. Pretty good advice, isn't it? If you're, if you're not engaged in something good and noble and, and, and some, you know, idle hands the devil's workshop, at least, for goodness sake, don't be alone. And likewise, if you're going to be alone, make sure you're engaged in some useful activity. David could have had lots of things to do as king. So I don't think we're in the realm of sin versus not sin. I would say we're in the realm of, like, wisdom versus being unwise, not wise for David to be alone and bored like this. Verse two, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. See there again, it's not a sin. Like late one afternoon, David, you're still in bed. It's not a sin. It's just not a good look, man. Like what, like, what are you doing? And, and now he's, he's, he's walking on the roof of the king's house. When you're walking on a roof, it means you're not going anywhere. Right? You're, you're pacing. And so we're sort of again, it's not sin, it's just it's wisdom here. Ah, but that he saw when this happened, when he's up on the roof with a commanding view of the city, he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful and so it begins. The king on his roof has a commanding view of Jerusalem. You, you, perhaps you've been to the Holy Land or you've seen pictures of it, all these houses crammed in close together and as a, the, the, the king, the highest place, he's looking out over and of course can look into places he has no business looking Again, it's still technically, I don't, it's, the glance is not necessarily a sin. It's a sin when the glance becomes the gaze, the lustful intent, the lingering. Now, let me pause here and say we are not ancient kings, but it should at least make us stop and think that in 2022, almost every one of you, you have a more commanding view than King David. Why do I say that? Because King David, from the roof of his palace, had a commanding view, and he could look across an entire city. You, if you have a little screen, you can look across an entire internet. You have a more commanding view with a screen or an iPhone or an iPad or a tablet or a TV than the ancient king. I wonder if the modern equivalent of the ancient rooftop is the internet browser. At any rate, the lingering look, the lustful thought is entertained. Verse three, and, and, and David sent and inquired about the woman. And now he's, 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 he's in the wrong place, the wrong time. He's indulges this curiosity. At some point, we would say, David, what are you inquiring about the woman? What, what does it matter who she is? What business is that of yours? Why would you indulge that curiosity? And he would probably say, well, what's the harm in finding out? Hey, you know, I'm, he's just checking up, you know, looking at her, her social media status. He just, you know, wants to find out what's the harm in curiosity, he would say. Is that, is that a sin? Is it wrong for me, the king, not to know who this person is? Well, thankfully, some servant must have had good sense because someone said, you see in the rest of that verse, and probably uh, uh, with, with as much respect as he could garner, um, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, as in... That should end it. As in, uh, this is not an object, David. This is a person with a name. And her daddy is actually really closely connected to your family. And her husband, <clears throat> she's married 
to Uriah, who's one of your mighty warriors. So that's it. Let, let, let's stop right there, David, because you need to know that there's a whole family and they have connections and she is a person with a name, not an object. And that should have ended it. But why didn't it? Because like count how many... Watch how many times throughout this story, David is traveling down this highway to perdition. Count how many times there's a U-turn. Count how many times there is an available exit ramp. Like, he doesn't have to go down this road of temptation. That is a big one right there. Well, she's married, so, you know, too bad, right? And he could have U-turned and gone, right, repented, gone the other direction, right? Why doesn't he do that? We know why he doesn't do it. Because when you're in the grip of lust, repentance goes out the window, Common sense goes out the window. Your conscience is told to be silent. And if your conscience will not be silent, like a smoke alarm, you take the batteries out of the smoke alarm. Well, that's fine. You've taken the batteries out of the smoke alarm. So I guess good for you. You've silenced the smoke alarm. Until what? Until there's a real fire. And a conscience that's seared is no longer there for you when you need it. A reason has gone out the window. And verse 4 happens so fast, the reader, it's almost like whiplash. What just happened? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him. And he lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. That's sort of a time stamp to let us know that uh, in just a moment that David will be the father of her child. Then she returned to her house. The extraordinary brevity of the account is brutal. You notice it's given without commentary, just the verbs. He sent, he took, she came to him, he lay, she returned. No conversation between them recorded, no expressions of affection. Nothing about emotions or thoughts of the person all we see are the actions of a king using and abusing his power. How fast the fall of David happens. Isn't that something? The buildup is so slow, but the sin happens so quickly. And that's how it is, right? I mean, for years now, David has been, you might say, David has been nursing a sin. He's been doing what? He's been adding wives and concubines. Have you been keeping track of that? Have you been noticing that in the story? That is in direct violation of what God commanded in Deuteronomy where he specifically tells kings, do not multiply wives. David's got a problem. It's been slowly building and little compromises lead to big consequences. And in the next verse, David, who has acted as a fool, learns what all fools learn. And that's this. You can control the inputs. When it comes to sinful choices, you can control the inputs, but you do not get to control the outcomes. You control the inputs in your life, but you do not get to control the outcome. So that's why you watch those fail videos, going back to my fried turkey illustration. If you don't want those outcomes, then change your inputs. So David learns he's not in control. Verse five, and the woman conceived and she sent, there's that word again, she sent and told David, I am pregnant. These are the only recorded words of Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. The news from Bathsheba shatters the illusion that David was in control. And he's got a real problem, right? The adultery, of course, in the Torah is against the law. And David is meant to be the chief lawgiver. He's the king. He's the judge. Now, it's easy to get sidetracked here. I certainly have so many questions. Maybe you do too. I want to know about Bathsheba. What about Bathsheba? It's been interesting to watch uh, the way commentaries deal with Bathsheba, even over the last 100 years, 50 years, and then really recent ones. Um, I, I think that's the point. The text doesn't tell us. You know, was she complicit or is it when, hey, when the king sins, you come. I mean, she's, she's, clearly there's a power dynamic. The king has the power and she does it. But that's the point. We don't know. The text wants to keep us laser focused on David, on the sin of David. I imagine David saying, I never meant for it to come to this. I never meant for this to be the outcome. And it's true in a sense. He probably didn't. But that's just it. When it comes to sinful choices, you control the inputs but you don't get to control the outcomes. And what happens next, oh, what, what could have happened next, right? I mean, what happened next should have been repentance. It should have been David comes clean, gets it, get, get, gets it out there in such a way that he can repent and there can be restoration, but instead he doesn't do that. He, he does what we, what, this is what we do when we're caught in sin. Our first thought is not, how can I make this right? How can I confess? How can I get this? No, our thought instead is, how can I cover this up? How can I do damage control? And we see here a basic truth. When sin is concealed, it compounds. When sin is concealed, it compounds. So David hatches this plan. He thinks, you know what? You know what I could do? I got this. I got it. He stumbled on uh, an idea that could get him out of this. He said, if I bring Uriah back from the fighting 
And if uh, Uriah, then yeah, the, uh, okay, this is gonna work, this is gonna work. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Joab's probably wondering what's going on, but kings are allowed to have king's reasons. Okay, fine. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. Isn't that great? He doesn't he didn't actually wait for an answer to any of those questions. Why? Because he doesn't care about any of that. He's asking, yeah, how's Joab? Yeah, hey, Uriah, how's the war? How's, how's everything? Yeah, we're fighting a war. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. In Hebrew, the how is it going is literally la shalom. He's asking about the peace of the people, the peace of Joab. Can you imagine the hypocrisy? How's the shalom while I'm ripping the shalom apart from your life and your family and my people? Well, David said to Uriah, here's his plan. Go down to your house and wash your feet. Now, it doesn't take much imagination. You see what he's doing here? Uriah, sent you back here. Uh, as a, as a, I just brought you back as a messenger to find out about the war and find out about everything. But since you're here, uh, go home, man. Uh, you've, got, you've got presidential sort of uh, uh, absent with leave, you know? Like, you're not AWOL from the army. You're, you're allowed. I'm telling you, you can go um, kick your shoes off, take it easy, and just tonight enjoy some alone time with your wife. And Uriah went out of the king's house, probably thinking, that's kind of odd. They have... They have messengers to do that. Why would you bring back a mighty warrior to bring the message? It seems weird, but whatever. And this is, <laughs> this is where I think David may have overplayed his hand. And there followed him a present from the king. Not very subtle. So the messenger follows Uriah to make sure he goes home. And along the way stops him. Oh, Uriah. Oh, by the way, we almost forgot. The king wanted you to have this. This would have been choice delicacies from the king's own table. Fine wine and cheese. There's some candles in there. Listen, you go home. We put a rom-com DVD. You go home and you, uh, it, you know, uh, uh, it, it all work out. It's gonna be great. David thinks he can control the outcome. But Uriah slept, and here's, the narrative keeps doing this. It keeps setting you up to think one thing. Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. What does that verse tell us? You can control the inputs when it comes to simple behavior. But you lose control of the outcomes. You don't have control of the outcomes. So David asked Uriah the question that the reader wants to know. When they told David, hey, you know, the messengers followed. Listen, he didn't, he, he didn't go down to his house. Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Like, don't you want the comforts of hearth and home? Uriah said to David, and it, again, I... There's two ways to read Uriah. I don't know which is true. Either Uriah is completely naive and faithful or he's 100% clued in and faithful. Like it's very possible Uriah's not an idiot. It's very possible Uriah's like, something is really wrong with all this. Why would he have called me back? Why give me the present? He knows exactly what's going on, but he's choosing to be faithful or he's completely naive and he's faithful. It doesn't matter. Either way, incredible faithfulness because look at his answer. Uriah said to David, so you want me to come off the battlefield and go enjoy the comforts of home while my brothers in arms are sleeping in a tent? And not only that, look what he says. Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and a drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Again, I don't know how to read it. I don't know if he knew. If he did know, it gives extra emphasis to the ark, David, and to you want me to go home and to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? Keyword, my, not yours. I will not do this thing. So much is incredible here. One, that he's a Hittite, which means he wasn't born into this. He later converted to to Judaism to become an Israelite and he cares more strongly about the, the, the law of God than the king of Israel does and it gives extra emphasis to the ark it's amazing that he brings up the ark so, so, so right now the ark is in a tabernacle and, and it doesn't have a home but you want me to go to my home you know what's in the ark King David you know what's in the ark does everybody know what's in the ark what was placed inside the ark the ten commandments the tablets of stone you know what's on the ten commandments Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not murder. David, you got a chance here, man. Oh, David, every, every one of us wants to put our arm around David. Go, David, come on, here's a chance. Call your eye in. Come clean. This is going too far. Come on, David. Where's the David who danced before the ark of the Lord? 
Now you're despising the law of the Lord. The same David who said, how I love your law, how I delight in your precepts, is, is despising the law of God. Where's that, David? Come on, David. Stop concealing. When sin is concealed, it compounds. Repent. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today and also tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And the reader's going, finally, David is going to use these two days to work up the courage. He's going to get some people around him. He's going to talk to Uriah. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. Oh, David. He just doubles down on his plan. He figures if I can intoxicate Uriah and get him to go home to his wife, then that'll accomplish the same thing. And in the evening, Uriah went out oh, to lie on his couch. The reader, again, he keeps doing this. You're like, oh, with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Oh, And now you can imagine David getting angry because you can control the input, but you can't control the outcome. And as Ben Stewart says, when you are in sin, nothing is more annoying and unnerving than the integrity of others. Isn't it something? Drunk Uriah was more faithful to God than sober David. Nothing could prepare the reader for what happens next. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, then draw back for him, from him that he may be struck down and die. What? Now that Uriah has killed David's hope of a cover-up, David decides Uriah must be killed. And he sends the irony of making Uriah carry his own sealed death warrant in his own pocket. What did I say? When sin is concealed, it compounds. David thought he could escape guilt when all he was doing was adding to his guilt. It's ironic that it's his own son Solomon who will one day write Proverbs 28, 13. He who covers his sins will not prosper. David's solution to an unwanted pregnancy here is murder. This will not be the last time in human history that a man's proposed solution to an unwanted pregnancy is murder. At any rate, Joab gets the news. Joab's never one to lack this kind of nerve, to lack nerve for this kind of work, and he probably guessed what was going on, but he adapted the plan a little. He's, he realizes the plan's a little sloppy. It's a little obvious. So instead, he goes close to the wall. Verse 16, and as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men, and the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died, and there it is. Full-blown murder. You read that, and you're stunned, and you go, how did we get here? And that's the question. May I say? That's always the question. You wake up, you go, how did I get here? This is, this is where other people end up. This isn't where I end up. I'm not like, how did I get here? James 1.14 says, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. When desire is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. And after that happens, we're left asking, how did I get here? It seems sin has carried David a lot further than David wanted to go. When sin is concealed, it compounds. And the answer to how you got here, David, is obvious. You silenced your conscience. You, you seared it. He never meant for this to happen, and now Uriah is dead. And for what? For what? It was an, it was an automatic victory, right? Uriah... For what? They were going to defeat Amnon, the, the, the Ammonites. The only way you could lose in siege warfare would be to get too close to the wall because your only advantage is you're starving them out. If you go close to the wall, you give the other side the advantage and they can hurl down missiles or arrows or rocks or whatever on you and they, they could come out and fight and run back into the city. So the only thing you have to do is not get close to the wall. And now Uriah dies, but think about it. Because of the way Joab had to create the plan, think about how David's plan has spiraled out of control. Other men died. So now other wives have lost their husbands. Other parents have lost their sons. Little kids will not get daddy to come home from the war, all because of this, that they were going to win handily anyway. So why would Joab, the experienced general, make this fundamental mistake? Why would he get too close to the wall? So Joab has to send word back to David, and he knows the messenger's wondering, how are you going to answer for this? So Joab anticipates that obvious objection, and here it is. Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you finish telling all the news about the fighting to the king, here it is, then 
if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know they would shoot from the wall? Joab knows what David is going to refer to, a a, a famous story in Israelite military history that Joab knew, and David knew, and the messenger knew, and every little boy growing up in Israel who'd ever played at being a soldier knew you don't get too close to the wall because of this famous story. Who killed Abimelech, the son of some guy? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? If, in other words, if David flies off the handle and he's like, why did you do the one thing you're not supposed to do in siege warfare? Everybody knows the story of Abimelech. Why did you do that? He goes, when he flies off the handle, tell him this one thing. Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. The messenger's like, why? why? The messenger has no idea. But Joab knows that technically That little answer, the death of Uriah, is technically the answer to your question why we went so close to the wall, David. So the messenger did, verse 22, told him everything. Now, any other time, David would have been furious, but once he hears Uriah is dead, look at verse 25, he basically says, ah, what can you do? David should have flown off the handle, right? He should have said, this is inexcusable. Instead, he's like, eh, say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you. Literally, let not this thing be evil in your sight. Don't let it be evil in your eyes. You know how it is in battle. The sword devours now one and now another. You know, what can you do? Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. Messengers thinks that is not what I expected the king to say. I thought he was gonna kill the messenger. Instead, he's all like, yeah, it happens. So now David thinks, whew, all's well that ends well. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. When the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. It was not uncommon for someone to step up and take on a widow as a wife. And David here acts all noble, right, and does that. And he thinks, that's it. Guess I got away with it. Guess I was able to cover the tracks, you know. Seems, once again, the laws don't apply to the rich and the powerful. They apply to everybody else, but what can you do? He's the king. I guess he's above the law, right? I mean, that's what happens in our thinking. The consequences for sin are for everybody else, just not you, right? You're special. You're somehow different. You can control both the inputs and the outcomes. And that's what David might have thought. That's what we all might have thought until the final verse in the chapter stops us dead in our tracks. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So this is the first time, you can go back and look, this is the first time in the whole chapter the Lord has been mentioned. David's been living like there is no Lord, like there is no God. And so, so th- th- this is a play on what he told Joab. He told Joab, do not let this thing displease you. He's really telling his own conscience, they're there, it's probably not that bad, don't let this thing displease you. But the thing had displeased the Lord. Literally, let not this thing be evil in your eyes. Here, literally, the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. What's the point? Yahweh may be silent, but he's not sightless. David may have taken Bathsheba's flesh and Uriah's blood, but he will have to face Yahweh's eyes. Johnny Cash said it. You can run on for a long time. You can run on for a long time. But sooner or later, God will cut you down. How how could, may I point this out? David is a believer. He's not some lost pagan who's waiting for this big Billy Graham crusade that's gonna happen and he's gonna have this darkness to light testimony. He is a believer. How could David, a believer, not know this? How could David not know this? Why would any of us do this? And we may not resort to murder, but, but anytime we cover up sin, what's he doing? I'll tell you what he's doing. He's living like an atheist because the only way you could explain someone silencing their conscience over and over and leading all the way to murder is he's, he's living like, well, maybe God doesn't see. Maybe God doesn't exist. Maybe there's not a God. Maybe there won't be judgment. It's the only way to explain it. He, he knows better, but he is suppressing the truth of God for a lie. He's a believer living like an atheist. And as long as you live that way, as you silence your conscience and you conceal sin, it will compound. And you go back and you look and you go, at any point you could have turned around. Why didn't you deal with it when it was small? Why didn't you deal with it when it was temptation? Who of us don't know that feeling? Who of us can look at this? 
Surely, right? When you look at this passage and you go, oh, but God saw. Everybody in here. Th- 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 Am I the only one who squirms in this text? Why didn't he deal with it when it was small? Sin concealed compounds. You know, I was, the other day I was trying to hang a mirror in our bathroom. I did it all wrong. And I put the drywall anchor in there and it was all wrong. It was in the wrong place. But then the hole was too big. And I was like, uh-oh. I should have just stopped, but I was so embarrassed because I, dad should know how to do this. You know, this is obviously a thing a man should know how to do. And if I just stopped and come clean and done what I should have done, which was call my father-in-law, come help. <laughs> but I didn't do that. So I YouTube and I can fix this. I can do it. It's what I do. I got a bigger drywall anchor and I drove that in there. And now I got this, oh, oh no. Now I don't know how to fix this. And that's when the prophet Nathan came to me and was like, stop, right? You're concealing this. Just, that's a silly example. Man, isn't that how it is? David could have stopped at all these places while it was still in the temptation phase, while it was still so small. But sin concealed compounds. <laughs> how can anyone read this? Really, I'm, I, I want to know. How little self-awareness would you have to have to read this passage and go, glad I would never be like that? Doesn't everybody in here resonate with this? We see ourselves in this story. And here's the thing. If you saw David on the street, you would never... You would never know. You'd probably think he's at ease and everything's fine. If you see him out in public, David was wearing the mask. But you don't get to see him in the, in the palace at night. You don't get to see him tossing and turning. You don't know the agony that he was under. And you say, why do you know he was under all this agony? Because he tells you in Psalm 32. He writes out his journal. He puts it in a song. Here's what he says, just a small portion. He says, when, he's talking about this sin. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. You don't hear the groaning from the palace. His conscience is under siege. He's hidden it from everybody else. But the thing displeased the Lord. And he says, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. The heavy hand of God. Let me ask you, have you been there? Is it possible, you're watching this online or you're here in this room, is it possible you're there today? David was under the heavy hand of God. Listen to me. If anybody here is under the heavy hand of God, I told you, if you stay with me, we'll get to this grace thing. Anybody who's under the heavy hand of God, I want you to know that hand is a hand of mercy. Why? Because if you're, if you're feeling the weight, if you're feeling the heavy hand of conviction, it means God is not done with you. It means he's not given up on you. It is a great gift of God. To be under that conviction. It means he's after you. He was after David and he gave him an incredible gift. And he gave him another gift. He gave him the word of the Lord. We gotta wrap this up, but I want you to see the Lord sent Nathan to David. Who's Nathan? Nathan? Nathan was his pastor. Nathan was a prophet. So far, David's been acting like God. He's been doing the sending. Sending people here, sending people there, sending for this person, sending for that person. Now God does the sending. Now it's God's turn. And Nathan the prophet uses a parable to teach, oh, the craftiness of grace. He uses a parable, but David doesn't know it's a parable. See, kings were not only royal military leaders, but they were the Supreme Court justices. So any exceptional case or very difficult case would be brought to the king's attention. So it was not uncommon for Nathan to say, well, king, uh, put on your judge's robe for this one. You're not going to believe this one. Okay, tell me about it. He came to him and said to him, well, there were two men in a certain city. One rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him. Look at this. And with his children. What's the point? This isn't livestock. This is a pet. It used to eat of his morsel. And drink from his cup and lie in his arms. Did you catch that? That's the exact same wording from uh, chapter, uh, the previous chapter, verse 11. Uh, eat, drink, lie. 
Uriah says those exact words. You think it's right for me to go home and eat and drink and lie with my wife while my uh, 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 comrades are out there in the battle? I wonder if Nathan knew he used the exact same verbs. Anyway, he used to eat of his morsel, drink from his cup, lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Look how tender this is. Can you imagine? They've got a little place at the table for the little lamb. All the kids are here. The lamb eats from the morsel. Drink from his cup. If you let a lamb drink from your cup, y'all are close. Fair? <laughs> it was like a little daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And I mean, David was a shepherd. David gets it. David's like, yeah, I've had some like that. You know, just, I just love them so much and they're so cuddly. Anyway, what happened? Well, now there came a traveler to the rich man. David's like, okay. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. David's saying, well, that's crazy. The guy had all these riches. He had everything. Don't, don't say it. Don't say it, Nathan. Don't, yeah. He didn't want to take from all that he had. Of course, he had everything. <clears throat> Instead, he took the poor man's lamb. Can you imagine seeing ripped it out of his arms? No. Barbecued it. Prepared it for the man who had come to him. And David is rightfully furious. David's anger was greatly kindled, is the nice uh, way of saying it greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Okay, David, it's a bit much. Uh, The the penalty for uh, livestock theft in the Torah is not capital. It's not the death penalty. But what's going on here? Well, it's easy to see what's going on. Uh, David is raging because it is so easy to see our sin clearly in other people. So when I'm guilty, when I have a guilty conscience, raging on the sins of others helps me feel better about my own sins. Because there's always someone worse than me. Self-righteousness is in a way cathartic for the guilty conscience. So David can be like, I can't believe someone would be such a low life. In a way, you see what he's doing. He's soothing his conscience saying, whew, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. After he loses his cool, he states the official judgment, which, of course, by the way, he did not have to go back to the Leviticus and look up. He didn't have to say, let me consult the law book, penalty for livestock, penalty. He didn't have to go back and look it up because he had it memorized. Why? Because he says, I meditate on your law day and night. He knew the law. And so he knew, and he quotes it perfectly. Verse 6, he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. He's exactly right. That's the penalty. Basically, the rule in the Torah was if you steal something, you got to make it right plus interest. But if you steal something and you can't give it back, so in this case, like if you stole a lamb and you ate it, you can't give it back. So the rule is just fourfold. Interestingly, that's why Zacchaeus in the New Testament uh, applies that to himself. He says, I can't figure out who I stole from, I can't figure out what I took. So no questions asked. Everybody gets the max, everybody gets the fourfold repayment. So, fourfold. Can't believe somebody would do that. Mm, I'll tell you if I ever get my hands on that guy. Can you believe? Someone with all that wealth and power would take from this poor man who had nothing. And Nathan said to David, you're the man. It's you. That's what the word of God does. Hebrews 4 says it pierces like a two-edged sword. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. David is shattered by the word of God. Humble. And God speaks. You've been doing a lot of talking, David. Now it's God's turn. And of all the things he could have done, he recounts all his goodness to David. Did you hear Pastor Scott preach last Sunday? He said it was the kindness of God that brought Peter to his knees on that boat. Paul says in Romans, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And God says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah David, you had everything. I gave you Saul's whole harem and all these wives and, 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 and I gave you all this wealth and I gave you all this land. And here's the line that gets me. And if this were too little, I would add you as much more. David, if this were not enough, I would have given you more. Corruption begins where contentment ends. You lusted. David, you lusted and you killed and you lied to get what I would have given you.
Isn't sin always taking illicitly in some form or fashion or to some degree? Ultimately, God wants to fulfill every desire of your heart in his way, in his time. And then the devastating rhetorical question, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And sure enough, if you want to read ahead, that fourfold repayment does happen as a consequence. Uh, The child, if you think about the fourfold repayment, the child in Bathsheba's womb will die. His son, uh, Amnon, who later commits this this rape, this story, he, he dies. Absalom, who attempts to usurp the throne, dies. And then in 1 Kings, Adonijah uh, will die uh, as he attempts to usurp the throne. So there's a fourfold kind of consequence that happens almost prophetically. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes, give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. There's an irony to this. The thing that David most want to cover up in his life the thing that David wanted to cover up more than anything in his life has become uh, uh, literally open to the eyes of all history. <laughs> like the whole world for 3,000 years has known about this. This story didn't get like leaked on Twitter. It, it, like you understand, the whole world knows about the one thing that he was trying to cover up. And of all the things David could have said at this point, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. What is shocking about this is what's not here. No list of excuses. Well, but she, or well, but they. No attempt at justification. Well, yeah, I mean, technically, Joab killed him. I just gave the order. No blaming of others. You know, I've been getting bad advice. I'm kind of tired. I'm shattered by God's word. Honest confession. I have sinned against the Lord. Thank you for bearing with me. I, I, I knew this is too much material to cover in one sermon. But I also knew that the only way to divide it would be after chapter 11. And pastorally, I couldn't leave any of us in that state for a, for a week without getting to what happens next. And that's the grace. It's the scandal of grace. So I understand the message is too long. We covered up too much material but here's why. If you've been with me, the goal is not to shame anybody. Believe me, if you're squirming, you're not the only one squirming, right? This is a message. All of us can look at this and go, okay, I can see myself in here. And here's what happens to David. Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Wait, what? That's it? You see why it's scandalous. I mean, we almost want to cry out like, what? That, that doesn't seem right. Seems like he get, I don't know, he got off like too easy, right? I mean, confession, and then God puts away sin. And when God puts away sin, it means he never mentions it again. Like, like I mean, I know there's consequences, and now's not a good time to talk about the distinction between consequences and punishment. But I will say, we should all be a little bit shocked by the scandal of grace here. You know, you know what's funny? Uh, when people read the Old Testament, one of the chief complaints they often have is they'll say something like this. Preacher, I don't like the God of the Old Testament, as if there's two gods. There's not. But they'll say, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. Why? Because the God of the Old Testament is too full of judgment and wrath. I like the God of grace and mercy. And yet when they read this, they go, well, that's not fair. That's not right. It all happened so fast. God is too quick to show mercy. So I think it's interesting. In the Old Testament, people say, well, God is too full of judgment and wrath. And here we're mad at God because he's not having judgment or wrath enough. Which is it? Is he, is he like... Too merciful? Are you mad at God because he has too much judgment or not mad because there's not judgment enough? I mean, if you're like me, surely you think, yeah, but David needs to have a lot of confession and groveling and um, I don't know, it's like God is too, it's like he's too quick to show mercy. Woo. And that bothers us. It bothers us. We, we would prefer that David wallow in his guilt and beg and agonize over the possibility of pardon. And if he writhes in obvious misery long enough, and we'll determine what that is, if he writhes in that long enough, then and only then we'll be okay. We're bothered by how quickly God shows mercy. It bothers us how quickly God shows mercy until when? Until we're the ones who need the mercy. 
Then we fall on our knees and we say, thank God you show mercy to repenting sinners. When we need it, then we cling to a verse like this. Because who is without sin? Who of us can read this passage? How little self-awareness would you have to have to not look at this passage and go, it's me. I am the man. I am the woman. Who doesn't need to hear this word of grace? The Lord has put away your sin. The musician is going to come and lead us in a time of response. The Lord has put away your sin. I wonder if for some of you, it still sounds too easy. What do you mean? What do you mean? How can you say the Lord has put away your sin, Pastor? Come on, you, you just preached this whole sermon and all this buildup and sin conceals and when sin is concealed, it compounds and you can control the inputs but you can't control the, you know, the, the outcomes and you, you, you got all this and now you're saying and that's it and, and what? J- just because you say sorry, God will forgive? I didn't say that. I didn't say that. God is not putting away your sin because you said sorry. God's not putting away your sin because you did some great act of repentance. God is not putting away your sin because you proved that you were worthy and you weren't gonna mess up again. We say, well, then how can you say that God puts away sin? Because when it says God puts away sin, it doesn't mean it was just swept under the rug. Your sin is put away. David's sin was put away because there was coming a true and better son of David. Jesus of Nazareth, and there on Calvary's cross, Jesus stretched out his arms on that old Roman cross, and the wrath of God that was supposed to come down on David for what he did, and as surely as the Lord lives, David said he does deserve to die, but the one who deserved to die, can you picture it? The wrath of God, instead of falling on David, fell. It was diverted, and it fell across the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, Jesus, on the cross, To David, it was told, you are the man. Isn't it something? When Pilate presented Jesus, behold, the man. The one man who deserved all the punishment, the one who deserved no punishment, was made sin for our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Ponder that. It wasn't easy. Yes, it's that simple. The Lord has put away your sin. You can receive that forgiveness and grace this morning. You can walk in that. Why? Because of what you do or because of the great promise you make? No, listen to me. The Lord has put away your sin. He's put it on Jesus Christ at the cross. And everybody who hears this story and goes, well, I'm sorry, that doesn't satisfy my sense of justice. What about the abused and the used like Bathsheba who was just used by the one in power and thrown away? What about her? Make no mistake, there is a God of justice. Every sin will be paid for in one of two places, either in an eternity in hell or on on the cross of Calvary. That's it. There will be justice. And you're in one of two places right now and you're up against a lie and with everything, with everything in me, I'm trying to come against this lie. Here it is. It's an opposite lie. Here's what Satan does. Here's what Satan does. Watch, watch carefully. If you haven't yet crossed that line, if you're in the temptation phase and, 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 and you haven't sinned yet, but Oh, it's tough, and the temptation's there. Listen to me. The lie from Satan right now in your life, the lie being whispered in your ear is this. It's not that big a deal. It's not that big a deal. There's grace. There's forgiveness. Just, it's okay. Just cross that line. There'll be other lines. It's okay. It's not that big a deal. Don't worry about it. That's the lie. And if you're on that side, I'm trying to push against that. I'm saying, look at first, look at 2 Samuel 11 and 12. This is the big warning sign on the highway going, detour, bridge out. Let the word of God today be the warning that you need to counteract that lie to say, no, it is a big deal. Don't sin. Take the U-turn. Hmm? That's the lie. It's no big deal. But watch this. Watch this. After the sin, and that's where some of you are, after the sin, the devil takes the exact opposite approach. After the sin, he doesn't say it's no big deal. After the sin, he tells you, it's such a big deal that you can never be forgiven. It is not only a big deal, it's probably the biggest deal. It's probably unforgivable. You are right now without hope. You hear that? It's a lie, all right, either way. But for anybody who's in that state, you need to hear me say, the Lord has put away your sin. What do you mean there's no hope for you? What is grace for? if not to be applied to your heart right now. So come clean. Come before the Lord. Confess. Repent. Don't believe the lie of Satan that it's no big deal on that side of sin. And on this side of sin, don't believe the lie of Satan that it's such a big deal you can never be 
Forgiven. Don't believe that lie. Receive his grace. Come clean. Uh, I, I thought that the most helpful way pastorally to end this message would be to give us all a prayer we could pray. And I thought, what better prayer than the prayer David wrote in this context? We'll just look at the first 12 verses. Here's what I want to do. I want you to pray this prayer as our sort of an invitation, I guess. It's Psalm 51. And we have the context to the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So he tells us, I wrote this about this sin. And here's what he prayed. And this is what I want to do. It's up here on the screen. But uh, you might want to find it in your Bible. I'll give you a moment. Find it in your Bible. And I want, you to, I want you to pray it is what I'm getting at. I want you to pray it. I'm going to pray it. I'll pray it out loud. You just whisper it. If, you don't, if you're not comfortable whispering it out loud, just say it from your heart. That's okay. Find it on your screen. Find it in your copy of God's word. Or if you don't have either of those with you, that's no problem. Look up here on the screen and pray it. I'll lead us out loud. If your version is different than my version, that's no problem at all. You just read it out of your version. That's okay. That's no problem at all. God hears. But I thought the appropriate way, the intelligent way, would be to, uh, to pray this prayer together. Let's pray. We'll just pray the first 12 verses. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be restored, renewed this morning by your grace. God, help us to learn and be warned by David's great failure. But God, let us not believe the lie that there's no hope anymore for David, just like there's, it would be a lie to say there's no hope for any, anyone here. God, restore to us that joy of salvation. Let us stay close to you and stay, stay clean and Don't let us conceal. God, we ask this, not because we're great prayers or not because we're great repenters. We ask this because of your great loving kindness, because of your great mercy. And we ask in the name of the one who was slain for us and for our salvation, Jesus, amen. Would you stand to your feet? If you'd like to kneel at the altar and pray, if you want to pray with Pastor Scott, we want to have a time of invitation where you can respond to what God is saying to you.